Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms once again this morning. Psalm 19 will be our text this morning as we continue our sermon series for the month of January in the book of Psalms. I've entitled, Delighting in the Word. And this morning as we open up Psalm 19, we will see how the Word of God revives our souls. Well, did anyone have just one of those days this week? Anyone? One of those? (laughs) Some had six or seven of those days uh, this week. Uh, We've all been there. We probably have the t-shirt that says that as well. We've had those days that for some reason just start off bad and then just continue to roll and roll and roll downhill. I think one of the best children's books that I've seen that's out there is Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Anyone else read that book? Uh, It's reality, isn't it? I mean, everyone knows giraffes can't dance, even if Gerald really wants to. If you haven't read that book, it's a great book too, but he can't dance. Good Night Moon, I mean, the only reason for that book is to bore our kids to sleep. Uh, because you don't say goodnight to the moon and everything else in the room. We all love Alexander's and terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day because we know it's reality. We've lived that. We've been there. Our kids have journeyed with us there too. Maybe they've taken us into that very bad day. If you haven't read the book, here's the basic gist of the book. Alexander wakes up the first thing in the morning and chewing gum that was in his mouth last night, not sure why he went to bed with the gum in his mouth, this somehow ends up in his hair. He trips on the skateboard, drops his sweater in the sink while water is running. At the table for breakfast, his brothers Nick and Anthony find prizes in their cereal, but yet Alexander only finds cereal. From then on, the day just gets worse and worse. In fact, later on in the day, they have lima beans for dinner, which, of course, he hates. Alexander sees kissing on TV, which, of course, Everyone hates. His bath time is horrible. The water's too hot. He gets soap in his eyes. His marble goes down the drain. And worst of all, he's forced to wear his train pajamas, which he hates. I mean, that kind of sounds like one of our days that we've had this last week for some of us parents. Then at bedtime, his Mickey Mouse nightlight burns out. He bites his tongue. Nick takes back a bed pillow he said Alexander could keep. And the cat says he doesn't want to sleep with Alexander. He wants to sleep with Anthony instead. That, for sure, is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And it's reality. We've all had one of those days. Some days by 9 o'clock in the morning, we want a do-over. And by lunchtime, we're so depressed that we just want to quit our job, go home, cry, eat a gallon of ice cream, binge on Netflix, as if that would actually make the day any better. We want to do whatever we can to make the day better. Because Life is messy. It's hard. It's grimy. It's not always, as the hymn writer says, sweeter than the day before. If it was, verse 7 here in chapter 19 of Psalms, wouldn't be that true, would it? We wouldn't need to be revived. Normal Christian life, explains John Piper, is a repeated process of restoration and renewal. Our joy is not static. It fluctuates with real life. And we've seen that. We've experienced that 
this past week. We've seen our joy high in some moments and really, really low in others. That's exactly what David knew as he writes this psalm. You see, David has had his share of very bad days too. There were days when his soul needed reviving, when it needed to be restored. As a matter of fact, as we read throughout the Psalms, you'll see this idea of reviving and restoration over and over again. David knows that we're prone to wander. He knows what it's like to be in a hopeless and helpless situation. He knows the terrible, horrible, very bad days. Yet he also knows the source of restoration and reviving. He has experienced this as well, and so here... In what C.S. Lewis calls the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world, David guides our thoughts on life. And he guides them through the lens of an awe-filling description of the heavens and God's gracious instructions in his word. And he does so in order to personally align ourselves with God's will and pleasure. And so it's here that we begin to understand that there are more that these psalms are more than just songs sung by a shepherd boy thousands of years ago. No, these psalms that we hold in our hand this morning are how God lovingly whispers in our ears on those terrible, horrible, very bad days. And he whispers, hey, hey child, I've got you. Come closer and listen to my voice. Let me revive your soul and give you fresh joy. But don't just take my word for it. Look at Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from the hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's life-restoring word where he increases our joy. So let's thank him for it this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word. And that as we read, as we have just read these words on a page, that we are reminded that these are your words that you have spoken through your servants. And so you are drawing us close in this moment because we feel the pressures of life. We feel 
weariness in our soul and we need to be revived as you whisper into our ears, I've got you. Listen to my word and be restored to joy. And so, Father, we'd ask that you do that this morning, that your word would not return void, but that it would do what it is always, you've always meant it to do, and promise to do, that it would make us, as your people, flourish and grow. Grow in our knowledge of you, but also grow in our love for you. So do that this morning through your word. In your name, amen. We don't have the time this morning to go throughout this whole chapter. So my focus for our purpose within this entire sermon series is going to be primarily on verses 7 through 11 today, where, where we come to find this striking truth, that the word of God revives the weary soul, creating fresh joy in him. The word of God revives the weary soul, creating fresh joy in him. You see, while it might be our natural tendency to run to friends and earthly means for assurance and support, there's only one thing that can truly restore our soul, and that is God's voice. And just like a child who has fallen from his bike or who awakens startled from a nightmare, In the middle of the night, in both cases, that child runs to his father in pain or fear. So, too, it is the tender and compassionate voice of our Heavenly Father that brings us true comfort and peace in our moments of weariness. His word revives our weary souls, and his voice ignites within us fresh joy and a resolved hope for the days ahead. And this psalm proclaims the striking truth as it holds out in front of us the nature of God's word, the work of the word, and the effect of the word. And so let's begin this morning by looking at the nature of the word. Having exalted in the revelation of God throughout nature in the first six verses of this psalm, David now somewhat abruptly shifts his focus in verse 7 to God's revelation of himself more perfectly through his inspired word. According to the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, in his critique of pure reason, he writes this, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. And yet, ever since the fall of humanity, natural theology has been ruled out because of what we as sinful humans do with the starry heavens. As we saw in Romans 1, we suppress the truth about God that is plainly shown to us in the starry heavens. As amazing as the heavens may be in all their splendor and beauty, the revelation of God in his scripture is even better, David tells us. For it's here that God reveals more fully his plan for mankind to redeem us from our exchange of his glory, to become partakers of that glory in his Son, the Word in the flesh. And so this shift here is not all that unintentional. It's not at all accidental. It's quite purposeful. David is leading us and leading the singers to celebrate God's law as his supreme revelation of himself. You see, the Word reflects who God is himself, his very nature. And so David explains, the law of the Lord is perfect. But once again, as we saw last week in Psalm 1, this phrase refers 
not merely to the law of Moses given on Mount Sinai, but to all of God's word, to all his revealed will. And note how here in verse 7, that while the psalmist has begun the psalm with a generic name for God, the Hebrew name El, he's now using the personal name of God, Yahweh, Lord. This is to emphasize that this was the God of the covenant who has revealed himself through his law to his covenant people. It's Yahweh's word that is perfect, that it is flawless or whole because he himself is without defect. It is complete and without blemish because he is complete and without blemish. He is, as the Song of Moses exclaims in Deuteronomy 32, the rock in his way is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So therefore, based on his perfection, the law that he gives is perfect. But also the testimony of the Lord is sure. The term here, testimony, is also being used to emphasize the covenant declaration God had made with his people. And as such, it stands firm. It's, it's sure. It's confirmed. We can recall from our study in Exodus chapter 24, when the law had been verified by the blood of the covenant sprinkled over the testimony and over the people. This is God's word that is sure. It is perfect. This is the nature of God's word because it is the nature of God himself. We often hear the phrase thrown around, a man of his word. Most recently, it's been used in the title of a documentary on Pope Francis, who promises to spread peace throughout the world. The phrase is often used in the realm of sports, when an athlete promises victory. Yet in both of those cases, none of us are really willing to place our full confidence in those individuals. Do we really think Pope Francis can bring world peace? And that the promise uh, that was made at the beginning of the season to win the Super Bowl is really, really going to happen? For all, for all we know is that promises are usually broken. Promises can't always be kept. However, with God, it's completely different. God is always a man of his word. His word is sure. Because he himself is trustworthy. Psalmist moves on, the precepts of the Lord are right. His orders and directions guide us in the correct direction. Again, as we saw last week in Psalm 1, it's the blessed man who follows the precepts of the Lord, and they guide them on the path of righteousness, and so he prospers. You see, God's rules and his directions are, are never wrong. He has no need to correct himself. They are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The word is word pure here may also be rend, rendered radiant. And as such would reconnect the sun imagery of verses 4 through 6. It leads Sam Storms to conclude, God's commandments shine and shimmer and glow and glimmer. They are brilliant and bright and dispel the darkness of human ignorance and senseless advice. See, the commands of the Lord are radiant. They're beautiful. While we in our fallenness bristle at the thought of any command that might squelch our freedom and enjoyment, the commands of God are not so. 
Instead, the commands of God produce joy. The commands are radiant. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, the psalmist says. You see, God's judgments are, are always dependable and principled. God's never unfair, nor is he ever flawed. Now, I'm sure we can all think of rules, regulations that we've kept throughout the years that were flawed, uh, that have been both unfair and, and flawed, like that crazy ladies' first rule. I mean, what's that? Just kidding, ladies. That one's a good rule. We all have in our mind those rules that either our parents had or we had at school that were flawed, but with God, we never have to doubt if he's fair he's trustworthy, if there's truth in his word, it is true and righteous altogether. This is the the nature of God and his word. It's perfect, sure, right, pure, true, and righteous. Yet, as the psalmist is going through and listing these all off in rapid fire, we see that he doesn't just stop with these truths. For the word of God is not simply a, a book to be studied for more knowledge, It is a book to be applied for our joy in him. And so look again, starting in verse 7, at what the word does. We saw what it is and who our God is, but look what it does. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I love how Martin Luther has explained the work of the word. He has stated, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. The Bible is alive. It runs after us. It grabs a hold of us. And that's exactly what David explains here, that the word of God goes to work on us. Each time it's read, each time it's proclaimed, preached, explained, it moves and it does its work. You see, the word of God does not lie dormant in the life of a true child of God. Oh, while a physical copy might be set aside, unfortunately, to collect dust as it takes up space on a shelf, the word itself will never remain inactive in a true believer's life and heart. It will continue to do its work. For, as the author of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So God's word goes to work, and David explains this heart surgery work of the word like this. It revives the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The truth is, this phrase does not paint that pretty of a picture here. You don't revive someone that is in a healthy state. This is an individual that's struggling to stay alive and needs to be acted upon. One that needs to be brought back to health. One commentator writes, one of the more common uses of this verb, revive, is to describe repentance and obedience to God in his Torah. The Torah not only revives, but also calls the faithful to repent and return. You see, I think what David has in mind here is that terrible, horrible, very bad day. 
from which our souls need to be revived and restored. The King James translates this verb as converting. And while the unbelieving soul certainly needs to be acted upon, and the word of God is always central in conversion, I think it's more accurate to to the original text to understand this verb in the sense of a reviving or a, a restoration rather than the initial act of conversion. As a matter of fact, David will use this same exact word and verb in Psalm 23 when he writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He revives my soul. You see, this is the soul that has been wounded and weary. Wounded and weary to the point of needing a revival, a reviving. They are in need of being brought back to the point of finding satisfaction and their joy in God. It's the idea that Paul conveys when he writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1, saying, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. You see, maintaining our joy in God takes work. It's a fight. It's a fight where we wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, against our adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion. The psalmist tells us the Word goes to work for us and on us. It revives our souls so that we might obtain that fresh joy in Jesus. Being as trustworthy as it is, He continues on and says the word also makes the wise simple. Sorry, it makes the simple wise. Once again, this is not simply academic wisdom that the psalmist is describing here. What he's saying is this is street smarts. This notion of the simple we find in the Psalms and actually we'll find throughout Proverbs as well is that of those who are naive in their youth. They lack the wisdom necessary in their inexperience to make wise decisions rather than destructive ones. To these, the word of God lays out the path of life, the psalmist tells us. It leads those who embrace it by faith in the way of righteousness. It's no wonder then that the word, having revived the soul and provided wisdom for life, would, as the psalmist describes next, rejoice the heart. Rightly understanding God's instructions, its guidance, then will not be his his commands will not be viewed as restrictive or even constrictive to our lives. The, the psalmist says it will rejoice our heart. The commands will enlarge our capacity for delight and joy in our life. Like most other men I know, except for maybe Grant, since it's his job. Manuals and instructions are optional for me. Anybody else? Manuals, instructions, somewhat optional in life? I mean, who wants to really read through all of those instructions to learn how to fly a remote control helicopter you just gave to your son for Christmas? Not I. Uh, Especially not right in front of him. It can't be that hard to figure out this toy that we just bought them. Why would we need instructions? Right? (laughs) Wrong. I've come to find that out this past couple weeks. Instructions, when we see them correctly, produce joy. And us, when we finally figure it out, and our children, when they figure it out. Especially when we don't know what to do, instructions can produce 
joy. They allow us to use what we purchased as it is intended to be used. I know that might, for some of you, say I need to turn in my man card because I've said instructions are good. But it's true. Precepts, instructions that are accurate, like those Grant writes daily, right? Or more importantly, the ones that God gives us in this word that we hold in front of us, enlarge our capacity for joy. These instructions liberate us from our own foolishness and missteps. That is what God's word does. It revives, it makes wise, it creates joy, and it enlightens our eyes. Because God's commands are radiant, they shine bright in our dim eyes, and like a lamp, they reveal the stability of our footing or the lack thereof. I mean, what a a gift of grace the word of God is to us. As we read through this psalm, we see what it is and what it does in our lives. Yet sadly, we far too often relegate our intake of his word to just short times in the morning. Or for some, to only open it during this time on Sunday mornings. Yet its work is powerful and pervasive for our joy in Jesus. The word works hard for our joy, but friends, are we allowing it to do so? Are you availing yourself to the joy-propagating labor of the word of God? Those who employ the word in their life, not merely for more knowledge, but for their all-satisfying joy in Jesus, will declare, as the psalmist says in verses 10 and 11, more to be desired are they, that is, the truths about God's word, his instructions, his testimony, his law, his rules. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, that is, God's word is your servant warned in keeping them, there is great reward. This is the effect of the word as it does its work in our lives. The word of God creates a desire for itself. It's that delightful. Some of you might remember a few years ago when Lay's Potato Chips introduced that clever advertising campaign, Bet You Can't Eat Just One. You guys remember that? It was a brilliant slogan, came with a catchy commercial to match, And the line resonated with most of us because it's true. It's impossible to eat just one of those chips. You open the bag, and before you know it, you've somehow eaten half the bag. You weren't even all that hungry. Bet you can't eat just one is the equivalent to what David is saying here. The Word of God is so amazing, you can't just nibble at it and then walk away. It creates within you an insatiable craving for more and and more and more. In fact, David is so enthralled with God's voice and his word that he'll echo these words in Psalm 119, saying, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. So, we might hear the words boring, tedious, as someone 
talks about God's word, but that is hardly the case. When the seed of the word sends its roots deeply into our souls, writes Sam Storms, the fruit it yields is sheer gladness. Oh, that we would be a people who are glad, who are filled with joy from feasting on this, the word of God. Oh, not just here on Sunday mornings, but our daily feasting of his perfect, sure, right, pure, and true words. But also know here that it not only creates a delight and a desire, but that it is evident in the fear of the Lord. Look back at verse 9. In the midst of him listing out what the word is and the work it does, he says in verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. In the middle of recounting all of this nature and work of the word, he explains that the word gives birth to a deep and abiding reverence for God, an awe that is clean or pure and endures forever. David has in mind here that the fear of God, that is the only correct response to God's voice. It's that fear of God Moses called forth from his people at the foot of Mount Sinai, if you remember in our study last fall. That reverential fear that is sweet and draws us to God. See, the word of God creates within us delight and reverence and awe, admiration. These words in front of us this morning are how we in this age look our creator in the face to know and find joy in him as he is. It's here that we see his justice mingled with mercy, his holiness fused with humility as he comes to dwell with us. As John would write, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In fact, that's all that verses 1 through 6 here in that this psalm rejoice in. And then John continues, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we see God in the face of Jesus through his word. And so we stand amazed in his presence. Each day when we open up the word and we flip to whatever passage we're at, we see the face of Jesus in the word and we are amazed in his presence. The effect of the word is delight and it's, it's fear. It's reverence of God. But also note in closing this morning at the end of verse 11 that the word warns and it rewards. As we saw last week in Psalm 1, the word guards and and guides us away from the way of the wicked. It it warns of the foolish counsel of this world. It cautions us from being enticed by the behaving and belonging that the world promotes. See, the word of God acts like a blaring siren in the midst of an eerie calm our culture fabricates, warning us of human cunning and craftiness in its deceitful schemes. But the question is, 
Is our ear attuned to the word and its warnings? Oh, but for those who heed its warnings and keep its commands, the psalmist says there is great reward. There is a great result to the adherence to God's instructions. But unless we're susceptible to being duped by the charlatans of our day who say in in this verse that this would be a great wealth, pleasure, and prosperity. But we must never forget what it is that the psalmist continues to hold out for us over and over again as the chief end of God's word. The true reward, and that is our joy in him. You see, the psalmist isn't promising here if you obey God's command that you will make a lot of money. You'll have a lot of pleasure in life. You'll be prosperous as this world defines it. No, he says the great wealth, the pleasure and prosperity you will have is in your joy in God. You see, the reward is God himself, for at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I mean, what else could truly satisfy? Who else could revive the wounded and weary soul? You see, that's why the psalmist concludes this psalm singing this, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He has tasted of the goodness of God in his word. And so his heart's cry is that his words, the meditations of his heart, would be acceptable in his sight, because he is his rock and his redeemer. His is a story of adventure. Not at all a story like some scholars hidden away in an ivory tower. William Tyndale was a man on a mission. A man with a singular desire to see the word of God available in the native language of his people. In English. You see, the word of God was only available in Latin in Tyndale's day. Few people could read Latin. Even many of the priests could not read it for themselves. There was simply no access to the word of God. And without access, there was simply no way to hear or know the gospel. Yet this was exactly Tyndale's passion, that people would hear and know the gospel. Being against the law and punishable by death in England, printing the Bible in the English language would would have to be done somewhere else if Tyndale was to complete his mission. And so in 1526... After several years of fleeing the authorities in England and moving about through Germany, Tyndale finally completed his first edition of the New Testament in the English language in the city of Wittenberg, Germany. Ten years later, however, having been betrayed by a friend, William was condemned as a heretic and was delivered to the authorities for punishment. On Friday, October 6, 1536, Tyndale was brought to the cross in the middle of the town square and was given a chance to recant. He would not. And so he was bound to the beam with both an iron chain and a rope around his neck. Gunpowder was added to the brush and logs on which he stood. And at the signal of a local official, the executioner standing behind Tyndale quickly tightened the noose, strangling him. Then an official took up a lighted lighted torch and handed it to the executioner 
who set the wood ablaze. The final words of Tyndale were something to the effect of, O Lord, teach the king the beauty of your word. And nearly every English translation throughout the past half millennium has been influenced somehow by the work of William Tyndale. In fact, without Tyndale's translation of the Bible, the English language itself wouldn't be the same, and what we hold in our hands this morning would not be there. In his note to the reader, in his 1526 New Testament, Tyndale wrote these words because he knew the truth of Psalm 19. He knew that it would revive the soul, that it was like honey, drippings of the honeycomb. So he wrote, Give diligence, dear reader, I exhort thee, that thou come with a pure mind, and as the scripture saith, with a single eye into words of help and eternal life. By the which, if we repent and believe them, we are born anew, created afresh, and enjoy the fruits of the love of Christ. See, he knew that God's word revives the weary soul. That it creates fresh joy in him. So, this morning, have we tasted of the goodness of God's word? Can we declare with the psalmist, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold? May we be a people who so delight in the word of God so that we might find the great reward, our joy, in him and him alone. Father, this morning, would you do that in weak and wounded souls? Would you revive our hearts? Would you create joy in them? Would you lead us on the path of righteousness so that we might continue to find our all-satisfying joy in you and you alone. We would hear your voice as you draw us close and whisper, I've got you. Hear my voice. Do what I say. I will lead you in the path of righteousness. God, tune our hearts to sing these praises. Tune our ears to hear your voice. God, I pray if there's someone here this morning that has never truly heard your voice as you've called them to come to you in faith and repentance, that you would do that work of regeneration in their life right now, that you would make the dead alive, that they would know you in your beauty and your glory. Know that your word points us to you your son, the word in the flesh. And they would know the, the reason he came was for them so that they might have hope and eternal life in you. So God, do that work of generation and that heart this morning. For those of us who are believing and yet wounded and weary, God, I pray that we would leave this place this morning holding tightly to your word, that it would create within us this insatiable desire for more and more of it. That we would not be drawn to our phones, 
televisions, newspapers, magazines, that you would draw us to your word, and there we would find the true path of life that leads us to your right hand, pleasure forevermore.